Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning, welcome back, and welcome to our first major series out of the letter called 2 Timothy. If you've got a Bible, physically or virtually, I'd love you to turn there. If you don't, it, it's going to be on your TV or your tablet, you'll see it popping up. Uh, these are Paul's last words to Timothy. These are Paul's last words to the church. Actually, these are Paul's last words to all of us. And we all know that last words, what someone says just before they die, reflect so much of the situation they're thinking and also what they truly are. And I believe that this letter is a needed letter for me personally in this moment, and you also, and for us, we who call it Sanctus Church, our home church, and also the whole church probably in the West in this cultural moment. I love years ago when Chuck Swindoll, who's now quite old, said these very helpful words. For those of us who've survived the devastating loss of idealism, humility settles in. Our desperate tug of war with pride ends with a kind of resignation. We learn to accept that nothing short of a supernatural intervention can bring lasting change to our world, and even in our own little corner. This is how I was thinking about it this week. Faithfulness over famous, sacred over scandal, Bible molded over personal brand, supernatural power over natural ability, promise over politics every single time. Now for Paul in this moment, he met Jesus probably 15 years earlier, give or take, and the world has been changed. Three major missionary journeys. He, he's visited and preached probably in every major city in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. By this point, he has mentored dozens of men and women. He has planted multiple churches. And by this point, he's written 12 out of the 13 letters that will compose over two-thirds of the New Testament. Only in 15 years. <laughs> now we come to 2 Timothy, his last words, his last letter. Now, if you read... Uh, 1 Timothy and Titus that are deeply connected, especially in Titus, we know that his hope was to go to Rome. And he talks about wanting to spend the winter in Nicopolis, a beautiful seaside, seaside port. And it looks like he makes it. And then he wants to come to Rome. And his goal always was to come to Rome to encourage the church and then move on. But something happened in the previous July that changed everything. Nero, who was crazy and neurotic, lit part of Rome on fire because he basically wanted to rebuild Rome in a better way. And many died, and he strategically blamed the Christians for this fire. Out of that came mobs and mass torture and mass arrest. And actually, the history is terrible. If you read the history of this moment, people like just us, you, I, us, we were treated terribly. Uh, many Christians were clothed in the pelts of wild animals, put in public spaces, and packs of wild dogs were let loose, and we were basically killed that way. Uh, many others were crucified, just like Jesus, in public in Rome. But actually the worst, the, the most heinous was uh, for the wealthy, they thought that Christians were so bad, and they loved torturing, torturing us so publicly, they put us in tar, in pitch, and they tied us on poles and lit us on fire and burned us alive, and we became the candles for wealthy people's party. Paul walks into that. 
Now, Paul, like I said, wanted to go to Rome. You can read that in the book of Romans and multiple other books. But his goal was never to stay in Rome. He wanted to encourage the church. And then he wanted to go into Spain because Spain didn't have local churches by this point. He wanted to establish them. But this does not happen. He's swept up in this persecution. And Christian tradition tells us that he is held in something called the maritime prison. That happened just before he was killed. But most likely, Paul was held in another jail where it's really bad. But this is where he penned 2 Timothy. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how Paul dies, but Christian tradition tells us he was beheaded in Rome and he was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen and did not suffer as bad a death. Now, 1 Timothy and Philippians are also written from a jail, but he was under house arrest. It was a completely different thing. It was a nice version of jail, but 2 Timothy, by, by this point, it's gone. The letter is written from a terrible, dark, scary, unsanitary jail cell, an unwinnable moment, a trap season, and there is no way out. It would be like us living during this COVID moment and being told that phase one would never go away, there would never be a vaccine, all the economy was going to close, and we would all die. No hope. This is Paul's reality. So in that trap, no hope moment, Paul writes his last words, his last friend's letter to his friend, a fellow pastor, a mentoree, and, and what he says is amazing. And it's so needed because he begins to demonstrate to us what faithfulness really looks like and feels like as a Christian in the worst of moments. What is also so important is that Paul shows us his human side, his needing help side. He says, I've been encouraging you, but actually I need to be encouraged by the ones I've mentored. But most important, as he's preparing to die, as many of the churches that he has planted have now been overrun by false teaching, as jealousy is growing, as injustice is everywhere, he speaks and he models faithfulness in the hardest season. Hope and darkness, sovereignty over situationalism. And where does Paul start? Well, like all of those who've been inspired by the Holy Spirit before to write scripture, it's amazing that the pattern almost always is you look backwards before you look forwards because you need to know who God is and what God's done so you can survive today, thrive today, and explode in a good way tomorrow to keep going in the now and not yet. So this is how it starts in, in 2 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. It starts like this. Hey, everyone, it's Paul writing. You know the guy sent out by God to plant churches. And as we're going, getting going one last time, I want to remind you, this was not my idea. Oh, I want to remind you, I hated Jesus. I thought he was a false Messiah. I hated Christians. I thought they were an aberration, aberration to the Jewish faith. And then suddenly Jesus revealed himself to me. I realized he is the living God of heaven and earth. And he saved me and he commissioned me. And this is his idea. It's not my idea. Do you remember what Jesus said less than 72 hours after Saul got knocked to the ground? Acts 9.15, this man, this is Jesus speaking, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to non-Jews and their kings and to Jews, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, by the way, Paul, in his letter, had to defend his calling time and time again, not just in this letter, almost all of his letters. Now, if you misread Paul's words, You'll end up thinking he's driven by fear or he's prideful or, or he's neurotic or he's manipulative, but you'd be missing the point. His calling was the source of his authority to speak and write scripture. And beyond battles with false teachers and jealous Christians 2,000 years ago, I know why the Holy Spirit 
had him include this defense time and time again because God knew that the temptation in every local church and every generation would be to split Jesus from Paul. But see, you need to understand this. Jesus chose Paul to speak. Jesus, this is his guy. And deeper than that, when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write the scriptures, remember who the Holy Spirit is. He's not just called the Spirit of truth. He's called the Spirit of Jesus. So when Paul is speaking in any of his letters, that is Jesus talking. And I know so many of you really struggle with Paul, and a lot of people hate Paul when he talks about sexuality and politics and gender and men and women and and church and doctrine. But never forget, when Paul is speaking, that is Jesus. If you're not okay with Paul, you're not okay with Jesus. So Paul says, I'm here by God's design and God's will. Now I want to encourage you one last time. And he begins by saying this. Remember in 2 Timothy 1.1, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's about to die and there's no way out. It's a really terrible season. And what is the ultimate focus of Paul? What keeps him going? Why does fear not eat his soul alive in a maximum security prison? It's one thing, one thing. Physical resurrection. Like he wrote years ago to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass unto you as first importance, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Jesus did not stay dead. Unlike all the others that have died, he's the only one who's come back from the other side. Not 15 seconds on some operating table and seeing some light and then coming back. Not some form of scan, scam, not looking dead, but having a medical miracle through resuscitation. No, 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 dead in the morgue, in the ground, one day, two day, three day, and then alive. Paul says, this is a historical event. This is not myth. Our faith is rooted in actual, recordable history. Resurrection is true. It's the foundation. It's all that really lasts. This is why Paul said when he was writing from a better jail cell in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he says, oh, I just want to start as we get going. Resurrection is the foundation. But it's more than that. Verse two, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. Timothy was a younger pastor mentored by Paul, son to Paul in in a spiritual sense and a close friend. But this little phrase is way beyond some hallmark greeting. Grace from God, undeserved mercy. Peace, shalom, a restored relationship between you and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what you have experienced. This is God's gift, ongoing gift over you. Grace leads to peace. As one said, cause and effect, root and fruit. Grace leads to this peace, and then this peace is also mercy, undeserved, merited love through Jesus. Now, notice, all these things, grace, mercy, and peace, you can't achieve them. They can't be bought or seduced. They just have to be given and accepted because God is what? (laughs) He's love. And again, I, I need to point this out. It's so important that we catch this because Paul, when he writes this, puts God the Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on the same level as Jesus. He speaks of them on the same level. Well, that is 
utter heresy unless Jesus is one with the Father and is God because you can't share the same space with God and not be him. Did you catch it? Paul hasn't even talked into the bad situation yet. God's nature is clear. The lordship of Jesus is clear. The gospel as gift is clear. Physical resurrection is clear. Paul's relationship as encourager to Timothy is clear. These are the foundations to keep going in the darkest of seasons. Without this, when real crisis comes, things collapse. So after all this is affirmed, then Paul begins to write and give courage to help this young pastor to keep going with internal fights in his local church and false teaching and personal struggles and a call to understand the Bible and and live under it and also to prepare for his friend's death. I thank God, verse 3, whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as day and night I consistently remember you in my prayers. Now that word serve, if you're going to take some deeper notes, Uh, highlight or underline it, it was almost exclusively used in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the LXX. That was used for priests when they were actually in the temple serving God in Jerusalem. When Paul writes this, it's actually revolutionary and shocking. Christian service now has fulfilled and replaced that. And this gives us such needed insight between service and his next words. I worship, I am like a priest, and I serve as my ancestors did. And I thank the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah, and Malachi that my work and my worship is equal and in tandem with all my Jewish ancestors. I have a clear conscience. Why? Because Jesus is the King of the Jews. I have a clear conscience. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah and he is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. My faith as a Jew, Paul would say, was a picture, a foreshadow of what God was going to do through and for the world through Jesus. Christianity is the one true living God bringing the world back to himself through Jesus by the Spirit. Paul's walk with Jesus is the fulfillment of his Jewish faith, not the breaking away from it. So he says, with my calling clear and my salvation secure and my resurrection guaranteed, and since I have peace with God, And since I've experienced great mercy and grace that comes by God through Jesus, that goes beyond my ethnic history or my religious training or my ability, since all of that is settled, ready everyone? Past tense. I sit in this no way out situation and I'm preparing to die. And then Paul says, I pray for you day and night, Timothy. (laughs) Did Paul eat and sleep? Of course. Day and night means intentional, regular, and focused. And it's not just some dry, dead spiritual discipline. There's emotion to this. Verse four, recalling your tears, I long to see you, Timothy, so I may be filled with joy. And then we arrive to one of the most important verses about encounter and conversion in the whole Bible. I preached on this in the last year and a half. And we miss it when we read 2 Timothy because it feels boring, normal, family-based, unspectacular. I'm reminded of your sincere faith which lived first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now also lives in you. Okay, this is about Timothy's family. Now we have only one other passage that gives us real insight into Timothy's family. It comes from Acts 16.1. And hold on to this history moment because it's going to help us at the end. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium or Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. So let me unpack this. This 
you're like, this is history boring. No, no, this really matters. Okay. Timothy's mom was Jewish. Timothy's grandmother was Jewish. So within the worldview of most people 2,000 years ago, Timothy would be considered Jewish. Dad's a Greek. Why does that matter? That means his mom married a, a pagan person. So she had become an apostate Jew, a nominal Jew, outside of God's love and family because she marries an outsider. She marries one that does not worship the true living God at all because he would eat and touch unclean things. So actually, there's a good chance that Timothy's mom and grandma would not even be able to go to the synagogue because they were unclean. So Timothy's not circumcised, even though he's ethnically Jewish and everyone else considered him Jewish. Now, circumcision was a physical sign of the Jewish faith invented by God. One person helps us understand why God even started this practice. He, he writes, no doubt the surgery was symbolic of the sinfulness of people that's passed from generation to generation. This graphic symbol of the need for removing sin became the sign of a believing Jew. But by Paul's day, by Jesus and Paul's day, now people were writing that circumcision actually saved you. Multiple rabbis, I read it, said that no circumcised Jewish man would ever go to hell just because he's circumcised. So Timothy's mom and grandma were Jewish ethnically, religiously sort of in and out. Timothy was raised Jewish, sort of. His dad's a pagan. To everyone else, Timothy is considered Jewish. To the Jewish community, he's not saved and he's going to hell. And in the middle of all of that, Timothy's mom and Timothy's grandma came to faith in Jesus and shared their faith with Timothy. And Paul says, I saw it in them. I'm persuaded it's now in you. Timothy's faith is sincere. Paul says the faith is on the inside of him. Now, why does this matter? Christian faith is not inherited. It has to be accepted by every generation. That's why years ago, Billy Graham rightly said, God has no grandchildren. Every generation has to make the decision. So Paul says, with all that background, I want to encourage you to keep going. For this reason, verse 6, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, I love this. We come to gift-based ministry. This is not saying that Timothy had stopped using spiritual gifts or that he had given up or grieved the Holy Spirit. But Paul is saying is you must keep making the Spirit of God and His gifts the center of your ministry. This is where the guaranteed source of power is. Where you stop short, the Holy Spirit fills in the blank. He's the difference maker. I love that, that Paul chose this image. Why? Well, one historian tells us like this. In every household in the first century, someone would wake up in the morning, this was their chore, and they would coax fire from dying embers in the fireplace, which would provide obviously heat for cooking, and if it was the winter, heat for the house. So, so Paul's saying, blow the ember back into fire. For the Spirit of God does, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, first and foremost, we've got to catch this. In the most difficult of times, Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is present, and he's the difference maker in crisis. Withdrawal or discouragement can be overcome only by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit gives us power, real power. Actually, it's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Now, that word timidity means cowardice in battle. Paul says you cannot run from the unwinnable situation, Timothy. And I'm not running either. Wow, no escapism. But watch this. What's paired with this call for power? Love 
and self-discipline. This is the trinity for effective ministry for pastors, actually for all of us. The spiritual gifts are where the power to change the world really are. But love and self-discipline is what keeps the gifts in check. Help us not root our identity in them. The gifts have to be planted more and more in the soil of the Holy Spirit. Like I wrote in, in Convergence, that's why in 1 Corinthians, between chapter 12 and 14, all about spiritual gifts, chapter 13 is all about devoted love. Usually read at weddings, but actually it's about the community of believers using power right. I wrote this. Think about Moses for a moment. God gave him the gift of a staff, a powerful gift, and he did God's work with it. Split the Red Sea, brought plagues, all that stuff. Time and time again, Moses uses it right. But he also sins with the gift. He wields the staff in anger. Even though it was the gift of God, the staff could be used for wrong purposes with damaging results. I find it interesting that Christians are so quick to say a gift is not of God if the character is lacking. When actually the Bible illustrates repeatedly that the people of God and who he used had major character flaws. Uh, don't dismiss the power so quickly. Real gifts reside in poor containers. But here's what Paul is saying at the end of his life. God wants to use his gifts through us while he continues to work on us. Power, love, and self-control. So he says, this is what you got to pray for. This is what I need to encourage you in. And then he says, hey, and by the way, verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, now, we need to sit here for a moment because sitting here in North America, we miss the power of this. Ashamed, shame has a real strong sense in Timothy's culture. And maybe you come from a culture where family honor and shame have way more power than individual standing. Timothy, don't be tempted to look the other way. I know everything looks like defeat. I mean, I'm sitting in jail. This is disaster. Where's the health and wealth, Paul? Where's all the good running churches, Paul? Why are there all these false teachers? This is failure. This is public humiliation. Let, let me just give, again, a little bit more context. One historian says it like this. Honor was given to a person or a group on the basis of public acknowledgement that one's family was honorable or had inherited honor and virtuous deeds had been done. So values like strength, and courage and wisdom and generosity were in the ancient world associated with honor. Shame, on the other hand, was the absence of these virtuals. And then you refuse to give it to someone. So weakness, selfishness, and foolishness are the negative counterparts to this, and they're to be despised. So ready? Paul's in jail, weak. Your life's work, planting churches, being overrun by false teachers, weak. Being under the condemnation of Romans and Jews, weakness. In other words, he should be shamed and despised. But he says, Timothy, why am I here? Timothy, don't be ashamed of me as God's hand-picked messenger. And don't be ashamed of the message that I've been placed to give. What the world despises is where real power is found. But deeper, did you see it? Let me read it again. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. I am Jesus's prisoner. As another person said, since he was in a Roman jail, probably the Romans thought, Paul's our prisoner. Since he was under Jewish charges, under the religious uh, Sanhedrin, the Jews probably thought, no, he's our prisoner. 
Paul reverses it all in its head. He says, no, 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 I'm not a Roman prisoner. I'm not a Jewish prisoner. No, I am Jesus's prisoner. Why does that matter? In the no way out situation, in I'm about to die situation, he says, Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is in control. I'm just fine. Then he does something wild. He says, actually, I would like you to be ashamed too. (laughs) Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Again, as he's nearing his, the end of his life, he's still fighting false doctrine. So many people back then and today say that the Holy Spirit has little to do with physical life. And if you're suffering, it's obviously sin or Satan and you've done something wrong and be, name it and claim it. He says, no, no, suffering for the gospel is normal. Like I preached last week, when you deny what you want for the sake of the gospel, if you're mocked or marginalized or attacked for Christian belief or walk, that is a guaranteed place of encounter. Paul's contemporary Peter said it the same in 1 Peter 2.9. It is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. You don't get, listen, you don't get credit with God for doing wrong things and suffering. If you're a jerk or lazy or cutting corners or sexually use people or cheat or lie, no, no, no. If you get in trouble, you get in trouble because you're dumb, you're wrong, you're sinful. Don't do this. It has no value. But if you suffer for doing good, then this is grace and you'll be honored by God and you'll be rewarded at the end of time. That's why Paul says, rather, join me in suffering for the gospel with the power of God. Notice, suffer, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't suffer alone. See, 2 Timothy is all about perseverance in a dangerous, uncertain, unwinnable time. I know we all want to hide to escape, but Paul's last words allow no escapist fantasy. It's not just sitting in a jail cell, literally or metaphorically, with no way out. But actually, there's there's no hope for Paul. And so Paul says, let me teach you how to be faithful in a no-win situation. One, the past is secure. You need to start there before you look up and then look forward. So right now in this day, as it looks like we're heading into another major wave of COVID, as things are getting really wild and seemingly dangerous south of the border, as we still don't even know what normal is, as we have no clue what finances or schools are going to look like or church. And oh, side note, maybe you're listening to this sermon years from now and COVID's done, but you're facing something else. Here's the question. How do we persevere and be faithful in this moment? Well, you cannot fight the good fight and you cannot persevere and have hope in the jail cell unless you know that you've had God's mercy, that God has forgiven your sin, that God's grace has allowed you to become a child of God and you have peace with God that ripples into eternity and your resurrection is guaranteed. If that is not your primary focus, you will collapse. And let me just say this, not crashly. If you die of COVID-19, the resurrection is true. Of course, wear a mask. Of course, be wise. Of course, love your neighbor. But hey, everyone, what is what we have? It's the resurrection. For me to live is Jesus and to die is gain. This is our hope. This is the difference maker. But even if we don't die, what do we do in this moment? Well, second, we learn from Paul's last words in a place uh, uh, that none of us would ever want to be in is that he believes that changing the world happens through prayer. He says, look, I'm dying. I have no way out. And what am I doing? I'm pouting. I'm crying. No, no, I'm praying for you, Timothy. What? 
I know the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that I can walk into God's throne room at any time, full access and pray. Sanctus Church, let me ask you this question. During this COVID season, are you praying for your elders? Are you praying for your pastors? Are you praying for the staff? Are you praying for your family? Are you praying for your connect group? Are you praying for our country? Are you praying for more holiness in our church? Are you praying for more love in our church? Are you praying through impossible situations? Are you praying for revival? Are you still praying for the conversion of sinners across the GTA? Paul says, pray, pray, and when you cannot pray anymore, pray some more. In other words, when you're stuck and isolated and you can do nothing, you can walk into the most powerful place in the universe, the throne room of God, and ask him to change the world. What do we do in unwinnable situations? We pray. Here's the next thing. If you're a parent, if you're an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent in this semi-lockdown moment, intentionally pass on the faith to the next generation. To all the mothers, biologically or spiritually today, that love Jesus, pray for your kids, point them to Jesus. I remind you, as I did within the last year and a half, as parents, pre-COVID, you spent 3,000 hours a year with your kids. Pastors spend 40. And during the COVID season, way more than 3,000 hours. Any parent want to say amen? Oh my goodness. Lord, have mercy. But we, as parents, are the difference makers. Then pastors next. In other words, be a Eunice in this season. Be a Lois in this season. Share God's word and model Jesus's love. And, and by the way, remember that Timothy's dad isn't mentioned other than he's a Greek? Well, I want you to hear this today. As I travel the world when we could travel, in so many cultures, churches are filled with moms, kids, and grandmothers, and so few men. So men, if you're a Christian, in the sound of my voice today, you must show your family Jesus. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed to read the Bible in front of them. Tell your family how you met Jesus. We as Christians need more honest, open, unashamed, humble, meek men that love the gospel. Don't buy into this weird thing that women are more, I don't know what, spiritual than men. That is not of God. Fathers and grandfathers and uncles, God sees you and he needs you to speak into the next generation. All of us give the gift of Jesus to the next generation. As one pastor who I struggle with on a lot of other issues, but rightly said, it is far more important what you leave in your children than what you leave to your children. This lockdown moment could be one of the greatest Timothy-producing moments in the Western church. In the last six months, I have had more spiritual conversations and seen more spiritual movement with my kids between Zoom calls and SpongeBob and arguments and meltdowns than I have in years. Is that because Joe and I are better? No, 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 no. It's just we've intentionally tried taking a small few moments to pass on the faith. Here's the next thing. Paul encouraged Timothy. And Paul asked for encouragement back. Not just, hey, I'm with you. Hey, I love you. You're great. No, he encouraged him in the Christian faith to pray, to keep going, not to stop. You want to know, well, what's the takeaway this week? Well, here's one. Pick one Christian in your life, whether they go to Sanctus Church or not, and you intentionally encourage them like Paul did to Timothy from one lockdown moment to another, and you say to them, keep going in the faith. How's your Christian walk? How are things going? Oh, here's the last thing. The most shocking thing, the most unwestern thing that Paul does is he embraces his weakness. This is how faithfulness is worked out in the strongest of ways. He, he wrote years earlier in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace, this is Jesus talking to him, is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Jesus' power would rest on me. That's the Holy Spirit. 
That is why, for Jesus' sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Did you notice it? Paul in 2 Timothy, we'll see this, but also here in 2 Corinthians, lists his situation, lists his weakness again and again. You, you want to take home this week? Here it is. Sit down and be brave and list every single thing that makes you weak as a human being. All the situations that make you feel weak and exhausted and trapped. I've got no job. Uh, the school situation, my kids are stuck. Uh, maybe you have COVID. Maybe literally you're in a hospital. Loss of connection, learning disability, mental illness, struggling with besetting sin, struggling with weight. You fill in the blank. Everything that makes you weak. Things that are sinful, things that are just in life, things that are not sinful, all of it. And then say, so I'm this week. Now God show up in your power so people will know it's God. Can you imagine if actually our weakness became the place where the greatest power is released? What do I do? What do I do? What do we do in this, this COVID moment, in this unwinnable situation right now? Number one, know the truth to thrive. Resurrection, grace, peace, truth. Live your life like it's true. Number two, pray this week. Pray because that is how the world has changed. Three, pass on the faith this week to someone, a kid in your life. Four, choose one person to encourage. And five, list your weaknesses and ask God's power to rest on you. That was just week one. And that was just a few verses. Can you imagine how much Paul is going to teach us what faithfulness looks like, what the good fight looks like in a no out, no win, no win out, no way out situation, an unwittable moment. This is a gift to us. We have lots to do this week, not as homework, but as movement. So Lord, thanks for 2 Timothy. Thanks for the last words of Paul. Help us to know the truth to survive. Help us to pray this week. Help us to pass on the faith if we can. Holy Spirit, I literally ask you would bring to our minds one person we're supposed to encourage and help people have courage to list their weaknesses and see God show up. Thanks, Lord, that you're teaching us faithfulness over fame, uh, perseverance over power in this moment. Mold the church as you want it to be, in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. We'll see you next week as we get going in part two out of Second Timothy. See you then.